The Guardian. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. From the unusual to the extraordinary, your website stands out when you build it with Squarespace. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com slash guardian. Well, what went in? There's been another woman murdered in the West End flat. What? Woman murdered in West End flat. What was she like? One of the usual? A well-dressed woman of about 35 with a knife in her back. Lieutenant Richard Hanney is missing. You surprise me. <laughs> I suppose your name isn't really Smith. Depends on where I am. You may call me Annabella. Hello, Nervy. Upset with those shots tonight? I fired those shots. You what? Yes, to create a diversion. You see, I had to get away from the theatre quickly. There were two men there who wanted to kill me. Really, you should be more careful in choosing your gentleman friends. No, no, you don't understand. Well, you don't make it very easy for me, do you? Beautiful, mysterious woman pursued by gunmen. Sounds like a spy story. That's exactly what it is. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast with me, Claire Armistead. If you haven't already guessed, that was one of many screen adaptations of John Buchan's spy thriller, The 39 Steps. As regular listeners to this podcast will know, we're always thrilled to get feedback from our audience. Today's guests include a university lecturer who was so outraged by what she saw as our dismissal of the novel in a previous podcast that she wrote in to protest. She is Kate MacDonald from Reading University, who also happens to be the author of a new book, Novelists Against Social Change, a sterling defence of middle-brown novelists in the early years of the 20th century. The source of her indignation was a remark made about Buchan by our very own Robert McCrum on a recent podcast about the best novels published in 1915. It just so happens that this month marks the 100th anniversary of the first appearance of The 39 Steps in Blackwood's magazine, where it was serialised over two months before being published as a book in October. So what better time to ask Robert in to defend his position? Hello to both of you. Hello. They're glaring at each other across no, the studio. No, not. No, they're not. They're beaming at each other, actually. But they, there you go. So let's begin by explaining who John Buchan was, Kate. John Buchan was an immensely prolific novelist. He was a biographer, a historian. He was director of information during the First World War. He became Governor General of Canada in 1935. He was a member of Parliament. He was a polymath. And he wrote The 39 Steps. He wrote 100 novels or something. Over 100 books, certainly, yeah. Can I interject to say you omitted the most important thing, I think, about him. He was Scottish. Absolutely, He's a Scottish, yes. very important Scottish writer. And actually, in the discussion that we had, I was trying to head off what I thought was an attack about, on him, but actually saying that he was a terrific Scottish writer in the tradition of Stevenson and so forth, mm. and James Hogan. And we have to say that the context for your remarks, yes, was, Robert, was that The right. 39 yes. Steps, which was the book under yes. discussion, is one of your 100 top best That's, novels. Yes, and, and I chose it very deliberately as, as a kind of milestone of the 20th, of 20th century thriller writing and a book of immense influence and tremendously popular. And in many ways, he's a great Scottish writer who chose to go down a different path, um, because partly because he's so prodigiously gifted. So tell us again more about his fiction, Kate. 
Well, he began as a historical novelist when he was at Oxford as an undergraduate. He published three novels, historical fiction, and then he turned to slightly more modern writing. But by the time he came to write The 39 Steps, he'd been dabbling in lots of different areas. He tried the supernatural, he tried philosophical satire, he tried pro-empire writing. But really it wasn't until The 39 Steps that he thought, forget it, I have to rewrite the rubbish that I'm reading now, because at that point in his life he was working for Thomas Nelson and Sons, the publisher, and he was their literary advisor. And he had to read modern fiction, modern popular fiction, to see what could be reprinted at a cheaper price. And he really understood the market, he understood what the ordinary people wanted to read, and he really didn't like it that much. He was picky. And he told his wife, I could do better than this. And presumably she said, well, please do, here's some paper. And he began to write The 39 Steps. And he began writing it just as the First World War was breaking out. So, Robert, tell us about The 39 Steps. Well, uh, one of the things that Kate was alluding to there is that invasion thrillers, which, which it is a very distinguished example, were the vogue in Edwardian England. There was a strong trend, just as we have Gone Girl thrillers today. The invasion thriller was a very big big uh, component of the, of the Boys on the whole, it was a boys' library in the in the Edwardian era, and Thirty Nine Steps, which, as you're suggesting, was picked up by the troops in the trenches avidly, was a classic boys' book. And it was about it introduced Richard Hannay, who then um, went yes, on to star in sort of five other books, didn't he? Uh, f- five in total, that's right. Yeah. And he introduces uh, introduces you know, supreme the, you know, the world weary. Former colonial Richard Hannay, who's come home to England, is sick of life really, and is he's one of the very first hard-boiled sleuths. He's not really a sleuth; he's a hard-boiled amateur sleuth, confronted by this extraordinary crime, which then leads on to a whole series of exposures and revelations, which lead to the climax. It's a very short book, by the way. Also, it's barely hundred pages. So, Kate, is... tell us just tell us a bit more about what goes on in it. In the thirty-nine steps, so Richard Hannay arrives back in London from a mining and engineering career in South Africa. He's made his money. He wants to have fun. He's back in the old country. He's bored. There's nothing happening, and then one night. As he goes back to his apartment, which he's rented, he's interrupted by a neighbour from upstairs who said, I need to have somewhere to hide, give me some sanctuary. So he says, oh, fine, come into my apartment and you can stay if you must. Next morning, the man's dead. And Hannay realises that he's not exactly been set up, but he's managed to walk into a terrific problem because the police are going to be after him for the murder and a secret gang are after him for the secret that the dead man has hidden. And so the journey goes straight to King's Cross Station to get away from the pursuers. He jumps off the train, he crosses the moors, he's in disguise after disguise. The whole novel is episode after episode of set piece. How can Hannay get out of this problem and survive until the end of the chapter? And then it comes back down to London. He pleads his case to the head of the Foreign Office. They believe him. He unmasks the spy. The pursuit goes all the way to the Kentish coast, to possibly Broadstairs, which is where Buchan actually wrote the novel. And he can see the ship waiting offshore, the Germans who are trying to collect the secret that's waiting in the, in the house that the spy gang have rented. So this, Robert, is in, in, has a direct line to Le Carre and things, mm, doesn't mm. it? So and a direct line from Stevenson, kidnapped, is a very important influence in the book, I think. Absolutely. That's yes. Robert Louis Stevenson. Louis Absolutely, Stevenson, yeah. yeah. And yes, it goes on to Fleming and then Le Carre, definitely. So he was a political writer, conservative writer. Very much so, yes. He was passionately conservative, although a case has been made recently that Buchan could just as easily have been a liberal. And if you look at his fiction carefully, 
it's never very clear if he was true blue Tory unionist or whether he was old school Scots liberal who now had become. You probably agree, Kate, that, that most thriller writers on the whole tend to be quite conservative, Absolutely, small C. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the nature of the beast in a way. It's a restoration of society mm, mm, and, mm. and order. Mm. In your book, you say that readers in the 1920s would turn to him for escapist reassurance. He mm. wrote about the strength of the new barriers between civilization and anarchy, mm-hmm, since in his fiction the boundary was always held. So it's sort of like Horlick's thriller, is it? <laughs> yes, it's reassurance. Things will never get that bad because there will always be something to protect you. It might be the government, it might be your own strength and goodwill, it might be the friends that the country has. There's all sorts of layers. But yes, this was Buchan's big thing, that the thin line between civilization and anarchy was a very, very thin line, had to be protected. And so it was the role of all good men and true, and it really was mostly men, <coughs> to maintain that thin line. And so he had a whole series of conservative hero adventurers you described them as. Yes, he did. Yes, there was Hannay was very popular. More frequently appearing in his novels was the lawyer Edward Leithen, who most people think this is actually who Buchan based himself on, who was based on Buchan. There are the younger generation. There's Jakey Galt of the Gorbals Diehards. And there are one-off novels, Adam Melfort in A Prince of the Captivity, All these men have the one thing in common. They are trying to protect the fate of Britain, the fate of civilization, of Western civilization, from being attacked either by nameless, faceless gangs or international crime conglomerates or the terrifying evils of fascism. Let's have a little reading from The 39 Steps. I returned from the city about three o'clock on that May afternoon, pretty well disgusted with life. I had been three months in the old country, and was fed up with it. If anyone had told me a year ago that I would have been feeling like that, I should have laughed at him. But there was the fact. The weather made me liverish. The talk of the ordinary Englishman made me sick. I couldn't get enough exercise. And the amusements of London seemed as flat as soda water that has been standing in the sun. Richard Hannay, I kept telling myself. You have got into the wrong ditch, my friend, and you had better climb out. It made me bite my lips to think of the plans I'd been building up those last years in Bulawayo. I had got my pile, not one of the big ones, but good enough for me, and I had figured out all kinds of ways of enjoying myself. My father had brought me out from Scotland at the age of six, and I had never been home since. So England was a sort of Arabian Nights to me, and I counted on stopping there for the rest of my days. But from the first I was disappointed with it. In about a week I was tired of seeing sights, and in less than a month I had had enough of restaurants and theatres and race meetings. I had no real pal to go about with, which probably explains things. Plenty of people invited me to their houses, but they didn't seem much interested in me. They would fling me a question or two about South Africa, and then get on their own affairs. A lot of imperialist ladies asked me to tea, to meet schoolmasters from New Zealand and editors from Vancouver, and that was the dismalest business of all. Here was I, 37 years old, sound in wind and limb, with enough money to have a good time, yawning my head off all day. I had just about settled to clear out and get back to the veldt, for I was the best bored man in the United Kingdom. That afternoon I had been worrying my brokers about investments to give my mind something to work on, and on my way home I turned into my club, rather a pothouse, which took in colonial members. I had a long drink and read the evening papers. They were full of the row in the Near East, 
and there was an article about Karolides, the Greek premier. I rather fancied the chap. From all accounts, he seemed the one big man in the show, and he played a straight game too, which was more than could be said for most of them. I gathered that they hated him pretty blackly in Berlin and Vienna, but that we were going to stick by him, and one paper said that he was the only barrier between Europe and Armageddon. I remember wondering if I could get a job in those parts. It struck me that Albania was the sort of place that might keep a man from yawning. About six o'clock I went home, dressed, dined at the Café Royal, and turned into a music hall. It was a silly show, all capering women and monkey-faced men, and I did not stay long. The night was fine and clear as I walked back to the flat I had hired near Portland Place. The crowd surged past me on the pavements, busy and chattering, and I envied the people for having something to do. These shop-girls and clerks and dandies and policemen had some interest in life that kept them going. I gave half a crown to a beggar because I saw him yawn. He was a fellow sufferer. At Oxford Circus I looked up into the spring sky and I made a vow. I would give the old country another day to fit me into something. If nothing happened, I would take the next boat for the Cape. My flat was the first floor in a new block behind Langham Place. There was a common staircase, with a porter and a liftman at the entrance, but there was no restaurant or anything of that sort, and each flat was quite shut off from the others. I hate servants on the premises, so I had a fellow to look after me who came in by the day. He arrived before eight o'clock every morning, and used to depart at seven, for I never dined at home. I was just fitting my key into the door when I noticed a man at my elbow. I had not seen him approach, and the sudden appearance made me start. He was a slim man, with a short brown beard and small, gimlety blue eyes. I recognised him as the occupant of a flat on the top floor, with whom I had passed the time of day on the stairs. "'Can I speak to you?' he said. "'May I come in for a minute?' He was steadying his voice with an effort, and his hand was pawing my arm. I got my door open and motioned him in. No sooner was he over the threshold than he made a dash for my back room, where I used to smoke and write my letters. Then he bolted back. "'Is the door locked?' he asked feverishly, and he fastened the chain with his own hand. "'I'm very sorry,' he said humbly. "'It's a mighty liberty, but you look the kind of man who would understand. I've had you in mind all this week when things got troublesome. Say, will you do me a good turn?' "'I'll listen to you,' I said. "'That's all I'll promise.' I was getting worried by the antics of this nervous little chap. There was a tray of drinks on a table beside him, from which he filled himself a stiff whisky and soda. He drank it off in three gulps, and cracked the glass as he set it down. Pardon, he said. I'm a bit rattled tonight. You see, I happen at this moment to be dead. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. From the unusual to the extraordinary, your website stands out when you build it with Squarespace. Their designer templates let you easily create a unique and beautiful website that looks perfect on any device. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, head to squarespace.com guardian. So, Robert, there we have a flavour of, mm, of Buchan. Mm. What is it about The 39 Steps that has made this novel so totemic? Well, I think it's partly the sp- it's written with tremendous speed and the narrative is it, it's really gripping. It really grips you. It holds you from the very first page to the last page. And 
it's a masterpiece of brevity. And the characterization is very simple. Very, he, he's very good on archetypes. He's very, very clear characterization of Hannah, particularly, but also of the nameless of the of the evil Scudder. And landscape. I mean, one of the things that's overlooked, I think, in the book often is the very haunting pictures of Scotland, which he obviously loved. As he's being pursued by the forces of, of evil and law and order across the landscape, it's obviously it's often very beautiful bits of Scotland. And how how much of the books? continuing fame is due to the films. There have been three films of it, There have been three films of The 39 Steps. It's strange because when The 39 Steps came out, it was a bestseller, but later, a year later, Green Mantle, the sequel, emerged, and that is the novel that most critics of the period refer to. I don't think it was until Hitchcock's 1935 film of The 39 Steps came out that The 39 Steps, the novel, became synonymous with Buchan. Before that, sort of when he was in his heyday, it was Hannay, but it was Green Mantle. And then Hunting Tower. Those are the big names. After Hitchcock, yes, I mean, Buchan said to Hitchcock, you've really improved on the novel. He enjoyed the film, but he was quite surprised at how the film turned out. But after Hitchcock and after Buchan's death, The 39 Steps became synonymous with Buchan, partly because Penguin did their 1956 reprints in the new orange and white covers. The 39 Steps was the first one to come out. And then all the Hannay novels came out in that Penguin paperback series, And that kind of codified Buchan for the later generations. There was a very influential critical work called Clubland Heroes. Do you know it, Robert? Mm, Yes, 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 Donford Yates and Buchan and Sapper. Richard Osborne, yes. yes, yes. yes. And that also really solidified the idea of Buchan was equal to a thriller writer and nothing else. So over the generations, Buchan's identity as a historical novelist, as a biographer, as a short story writer, all this stuff's been forgotten. And the heir to a Scottish tradition. I, I keep stressing this. It's very important. It is, yes. It's very, very important. That's why I put him in, because he's not just a thriller writer. He's also a very good writer. Now, let's tackle your criticism of him, partly what made Kate write yes. into us. Anti-Semitism. Was, you well, said he was yeah, anti-Semitic. Yeah. Well, it was a throwaway line, partly because I, I was trying to head off what I thought was going to be an attack on the book from our guest on that particular occasion. And it's, it's the one thing which is always thrown at him. When, it, when you want to attack Buchan, it's the one thing which does get trotted out. Right? Absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. And if I had time to develop it, I would have said, of course, in those times, those sentiments were pretty normal, actually. And also, Buchan is trying to create kind of world-weary, hard-boiled heroes who, who might express that kind of... But the thing is, the anti-Semitic line in the 39 Steps is not spoken by Hannay. It's spoken by Scudder. Who what was, is the line? The line is something about... Behind the, the heart of every criminal enterprise in Western Europe, there is a, apologies, I'm now doing inverted commas, a white-faced Jew with an eye like a rattlesnake sitting in a wheelchair. It's a pretty horrible line. It's spoken by an American spy who's working for the British Foreign Office, who has delusions of grandeur, who is an obsessive. Hannay doesn't believe him at the time. Later, the Foreign Office representative says, no, Scudder was a nutcase. Buchan is using two separate literary distancing techniques to make it clear this is not John Buchan's view. This is the view of a character. But the line has stuck because it's so powerful. And, of course, the same objections or similar objections have been levelled against T.S. Eliot, this anti-Semitism, which pervades some of the early poetry. Again, it's not Eliot's views, but it it reflects a, a kind of... Uh, this is pre-Holocaust. It's the culture of the time. It's the culture of the time, absolutely. If, yeah, I mean, um, similarly with Conrad, who was, I don't know if Conrad was an anti-Semitic, but Conrad Joseph is, Conrad. Joseph Conrad is often accused of being racist. Mm. Again, the culture of the time was to be dismissive of outsiders, foreigners, 
people of colour, people of race. Anyone or, who was other, who anyone wasn't, who, who was wasn't not too. white. He's, exactly. no, no, he said something. In 1928, he wrote a piece in the Mirror mm. which argued in favour of Mussolini, didn't he? He didn't. He said Mussolini is a great man, but he didn't approve of fascism. He thought Bolshevik, the Bolshevik movement was far worse than fascism, but both were pretty bad. I think that's a pretty fine distinction. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. But that's the only thing we have in print of Buck and the Man, Buck and the Individual, saying anything remotely positive about fascism. He really did not approve of it. In his later fiction in the 1930s, he definitely knocks fascism. It's, it's okay, um, ghostly and scary and He was a small C conservative. Oh, yes, he yes, was. So Absolutely, let's, let's not, yeah. Let's not, he wasn't but he a, wasn't a, a Mosleyite ever, ever. He no. was never, ever anywhere close and to he what Mosley was He reflects a mood which is, as you've implied, it was yeah. prevalent amongst his class. Yes. yes. Well, that's the thing. Buchan's class. He grew up the son of a Presbyterian minister. He married into the aristocracy and he, he grew up into an establishment mm, class, mm. but it wasn't his natal class. And that's, that's worth remembering. Mm. He was feudal. He was patriarchal. He was very keen on the maintenance of the existing hierarchy mm, mm. of class and, and society and everything. But he was not a fascist, not ever. You mentioned Dornford Yates and Sapper. Yes. Mm. So this is a community of writers who are writing, turning out popular fiction at this time. Tell us a little bit exactly the, the sort of society of writers that he belonged to. Well, he were, didn't were belong to... Were they, were they friends? <laughs> no, they weren't. No, I don't no. believe they ever met. That's the thing. No. Sapper was they a... Together, yeah, Sapper emerged in the First World War as a very witty writer of short stories about soldiers and then developed his very violent and seriously anti-Semitic line of novels about Bulldog Drummond. Dornford Yates was a, a witty, light-hearted short story writer before the war, much like P.G. Woodhouse, emerged after the war doing more of the same and then developed into thriller writing. I really don't believe he and Buchan ever met. Sapper and Buchan didn't meet, although they would have known about <coughs> each other. I don't think it's correct to call them a community of writers. They were contemporaries, but Buchan was about 10 years older and also from a completely different background because Buchan was... But they, but they were working, just as you, you have a, a shift at the moment in, in the literary community towards thrillers and cool detective stories... There was a vogue at that time for these kind of books, and, th and they were working was, yeah. off that, weren't they? They were. And Buchan mentored someone like Valentine Williams, who was working for him in the uh, Ministry of Information in 1917-18. He showed Valentine Williams how to write novels, and Williams went on to write The Man with the Club Foot, which is a fairly clunky early thriller about a German secret police agent who has a club foot and can be heard coming... It's very bad stuff, but as Robert said, it was part of the zeitgeist. It's what it, people wanted it, to and read. And it morphs into Graham Greene. Absolutely, so and, Eric a, and Eric Ambler. And D&D, Eric Ambler. And then, and then Le Carrion. So it's, it's a strand which runs mm. all the way through it. Yeah. And it begins with these, really, I mean, they are all, it's a very nice point, they're all Edwardians. Yes, yeah. They were born in the Victorian Edwardian period, came to writing maturity in the First World War, although Buckham was much more experience because he'd been writing all the way through the Edwardian period the other men hadn't so in a way what the, what part of what's going on is that I think there's a kind of unconscious elegy for a lost world oh nostalgia quite very absolutely. strong yes. nostalgia for the yeah. lost world of the Edwardian things times. were so they'd much been through then. world war one mm -hmm. which had been a cataclysm and it destroyed that world and now they're recreating it in for these in these thrillerish terms and they're expressing real fear that chaos and mayhem are going to come back mm, by presenting mm. heroes who will stop the bad stuff happening, stop the anarchy. So they have a kind of identity, although they didn't know each other, there is a kind of, I mean, when, when Osborne described them as clubland heroes mm. or, or their subjects, he wasn't wrong. I mean, they did fit a kind of, yes, a, a kind yeah. of as you say, a zeitgeisty Yeah, the response. characters inhabited the same fictional world mm -hmm. who could possibly be overlapping onto each other, 
but there was no connection between the authors. Yeah. Robert, we don't really read Dornford Yates these days, or even mm. Sapper, do we? What is it about Buchan, and in particular about the 39 I read steps? Dornford Yates at school when I was about 10, <laughs> and I haven't gone back to it. I've been reading a hell of a lot of Dornford <laughs> Yates for this book. Um, some of it is outstandingly good. He's a fine writer. He's also an appallingly reactionary writer. And the things he writes about women and how women... He's a snob, isn't he, as well? Oh, he's a terrible snob. But how he expects women to behave makes your toes curl. He's racist, he is anti-Semitic. But he's a fantastic writer, that's a terrible thing. As a literary scholar, you have to be so careful to divorce the emotions, concentrate on the literary art. What is being said here? Why is it being said? What is the reader going to get from it? It's complicated working on someone quite so personally distasteful. In many ways. Uh, but Buchan, I'm bringing you back to the Thank novel. You. What is it about the 39 steps? Well, I think he's a great stylist. And um, he has, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that he was very heavily influenced by Robert Louis Stevenson, who I think is one of the great figures. Uh, I put in my list as, um, with Kidnapped, in fact, mm. which is a marvellous book. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, a master of brevity, which is a, a great art. I mean, he, one of his great lines was, the only art in writing is to omit. <laughs> which you'll appreciate. <laughs> which um, Hemingway was to take <laughs> up in, in slightly <laughs> different words. And so I think Buchan, I mean, when I put him into my list, I was sort of thinking, I was, my doubts were that he's kind of ill-served I'm making him, putting him in for this book because he's actually much better than this. Mm-hmm. But he's also very, very good. And, a great, and I think a great stylist. And then with the Greek age. Absolutely. Buchan is a beautiful, beautiful writer. There are some passages you just want to reread and reread because the cadence of the lines, the way the sounds work, if you go deep into poetry analysis and apply it to those bits of text, you think, good Lord, there's assonance, there's consonance, there's, mm. there's all sorts mm. of clever poetic tricks in prose. He's just delightful to read. And I think, there's, I think I'm right in saying there's a biography coming out fairly soon. I think he, one of his grandchildren is writing about him. It's, it's long overdue. Ursula Buchan mm. is working on a new mm. project, yes. Mm. I wasn't mm. sure mm. when it was coming out, yeah. Well, we look forward to that. And also, I'm going to have to now go back and read The 39 Steps, and it won't <laughs> take me very for, long. It will not <laughs> take you long. <laughs> Which is a joy <laughs> these days, in the days of the huge sort of blockbuster mm. novels. But you will really enjoy it. Thank you very much for coming in. <laughs> Thank you. And that's it for this week. Robert's 100 Best Novels column crosses the finishing line this weekend. You can read his whole list on guardian.com slash books. Kate MacDonald's Novelists Against Social Change is published by Palgrave Macmillan. Thanks to both of them. If you'd like to follow Kate's example and join us on this podcast, you can email me on claire.armitstead at guardian.co.uk or leave a comment in writing on the podcast page. If you've come to us through SoundCloud or iTunes, just search for Guardian Books Podcast. For now, from me, Claire Armistead, and our producer, Eva Krishak, goodbye. My, my. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.